ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಮ್ಯಹಂ Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya the Sanskrit phrase means Brahman alone is real the world is an appearance literally the world is false but the word false can be misleading a more precise way of formulating it would be the world is an appearance of brahman appearance in the sense what appears is not real and the real never appears so brahman misunderstood is the world the world rightly understood is brahman now the reality of brahman and the falsity of the world if you put these two together the uh, upshot of it all will be the non duality of brahman what did i just say if brahman is real and the world is an appearance it's not real in itself in that case there is no second reality apart from brahman no second non dual and hence brahman is non dual all the discussions which are going on right now are to are to support the claim that there is such a non dual reality brahman is the non dual reality no second reality apart from brahman now we had done the 49th verse last time it's the same theme before i do the 50th verse before we start i'd like to make five points about the non duality of brahman point number 1 brahman is the substance of the universe you see when when the claim is made that brahman is non dual there is no second reality apart from brahman there is nothing else that exists apart from brahman now what does this mean brahman is existence itself the definition of brahman is sat pure existence now logically anything other than pure existence anything other than existence will be not existence something other than existence logically it just means something other than existence is not existent is not does not exist so in a very uh, almost i would say uh, it's a truism um there is no second thing apart from brahman you can understand it in this way brahman being pure existence brahman being being itself with a capital b obviously nothing other than that can exist because existence itself must share in brahman share in the nature of brahman in some sense otherwise it cannot exist so that's the first point brahman is pure being pure existence anything to exist must borrow existence from brahman so everything that we see existing here this world as far as existence goes it borrows existence from brahman now this phrase borrowing existence what could it possibly mean it's nothing very complicated we see it all the time borrowing existence in the sense the table borrows existence from the wood that's another roundabout way of saying the table is made of wood without wood there would be no table the wave borrows existence from water that's another roundabout way of saying the wave wouldn't exist without water and a simple way of saying that the wave is water this is another simple way of saying the wave is water so that's the first point i want to make brahman is the very substance the existence of this universe that's the literal meaning of the sanskrit term sat sat means to exist that which is point 1 point 2 is a bit subtle but it's very interesting it has to do with the falsity of names names the point i want to make can be stated in this way brahman is the only reality and the world is nothing but name 
You may say farm also, but I'm not concentrating on the farm now. I want to focus on the name. The world is, world's only existence is in name. What does that mean? It's like this. When we use names, the names designate something. The names stand for something. When I say book, the, the name book stands for this. When I say glass, the uh, name glass stands for this. When I say microphone, the name microphone stands for this. So each name designates something. If the name does not designate anything, if it does not stand for anything, then I will say it's empty, that it does not mean anything, it's false. It does not stand for anything. Keeping this in background, just follow this example. Imagine a pot made of clay, the classic uh, example from Vedanta, a pot made of clay. Uh, first we say it's a pot, so what's the name? Pot. In this example, just concentrate on the name. What's the name? Pot. Now somebody tells you that this pot is made of clay. And you look, you examine the pot and you say it's clay through and through. The top is clay, the bottom is clay, it's clay inside, it's clay on the outside. In fact, all of it is nothing but clay. Then we are justified in saying what exists there is clay. You cannot say that there is clay and pot. Why can't you say that? Because you cannot show a pot apart from the clay. You cannot show me two things. I, I can say, concentrate on the names. I can say there is a book and a, and a glass. Because I can show you two things. Book, here. Glass, here. But when you take a pot, if I say there are two things, pot and clay, can you show me a pot and, a, and clay separately? No. The moment you show me clay, you cannot show me the pot separately. Because they are actually not two separate things. It's clay alone. In a particular form, you give it the name pot. You give it the name pot. And therefore, from the point of view of clay, the name pot becomes, pot becomes empty. It becomes empty. It does not stand for anything. This is crucial. From the point of clay, I'm talking about a clay pot. From the point of clay, the material substance which makes up the pot. From the point of clay, the pot is nothing but clay. And therefore, the name pot, apart from the clay, the name pot, there's nothing that it signifies. You cannot point out the thing to which, which it signifies. Because if you show me the pot, I'll say that's clay. Apart from the clay, let me take the clay aside and put it aside. Now use the name pot to show me what, 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 is, what pot is, nothing. You can't show me. Therefore, the name pot is an appearance. It, it's false. It does not stand for anything. The name disappears. What's the meaning of all this? The meaning is this. When a person becomes enlightened, that person realizes everything that is experienced in this world as Brahman. So for that person, the term world and people and animals and things and food and life, all of this is really speaking just like the clay, nothing other than Brahman. All these terms become unimportant for him. They become empty for him. Because for the enlightened person, everything that we regard as the world, all these things, our lives, bodies, minds, every, everything that denotes plurality. For that person, these are empty names. They do not denote anything. Because for that person, the reality of all these names is Brahman. From the point of view of Brahman, these names are empty because they do not denote anything apart from Brahman. So the world for that person as world, the name itself does not denote anything. And therefore he says the world is a name only. There is no reality called the world. But that does not mean that he is denying reality. What he means by that is Brahman is the only reality. It's exactly like if I say, here I'm, you can see the pot. I'm saying that this is clay and apart from this there is no pot. So the, the term pot has no separate denotation. It does not denote anything. 
So this is the second point I wanted to make. From the point of view of Brahman, names are empty. They are the words, they do not signify anything different from Brahman. The third point I want to make is, it's pretty simple. From the point of view of Brahman, we whatever we are experiencing, pratyaksha, all objects of experience are nothing but Brahman. In what sense? When you look at the table, you cannot but look, you cannot but see wood. In fact, your eyes are coming in contact with the material substance, the wood of the table. When you look at the, the wave in the ocean, you are forced to see water. You cannot but see water. In fact, I'll go further and say you see only water. Your eyes do not come in contact with anything separate called a wave. Remember, the term wave becomes empty compared to the, the substance water. So your eyes are actually coming in contact with the substance, the reality, the material, which is water. From the point of view of the enlightened person, it might be strange, that, but actually that person sees nothing but Brahman. Don't get me wrong. The person still sees the forms, still sees a human being as a human being, sees food as food and sees uh, an animal as an animal. But that person knows all of that to be Brahman. This explains, you know, in the lives of great mystics, that they say they see God everywhere. We see human beings, we see plants and animals and rocks and mountains, and they see God everywhere. How is that possible? How is that possible? Somebody asked me, is it something like, uh, somebody says, I see Krishna everywhere. So is it something like that uh, the person sees other human beings, but there's a tiny Krishna somewhere in there? And the, the person sees a book and a glass and a table, and there's a tiny Krishna somewhere in there? So it's difficult to explain in that way. But from the Advaitic point of view, Brahman alone is real and the world is an appearance, it's not difficult to explain. It's in fact as simple as saying that when I see the table, actually I'm seeing the wood, when I see the uh, wave in the ocean, I am seeing water. It's literally true. That's the third point. In, in a certain sense, you see and experience nothing but Brahman. An enlightened person would say to us, the Brahmagyani would say to us, you too are experiencing nothing but Brahman. When you look at outside, you, you, ex you are actually seeing Brahman in all these names and forms. When you look inside, in your mind, you are actually experiencing Brahman in the form of thoughts, emotions, ideas, and so on and so forth. We just don't know it. You don't recognize it. You don't recognize it. The story of... Uh, um, Alright, the third point is interesting. Third point is vyavahara, usage, transaction. Every day when we, before we eat in our ashram, we chant Brahmaar Pranam Brahmahavi, Brahmagno Brahmanautam, Brahmhevatena Gantavyam, Brahmakarma Samadhina. This is from the Gita, fourth chapter. What it means is, you should see Brahman in every action. The one who sees Brahman in every action or makes a practice of trying to identify Brahman in and through action will finally realize Brahman. That's a practice. So every kind of usage, Every kind of action is actually nothing other than Brahman. That's the third, uh, fourth point I want to make. And uh, the last point is, I already made it earlier. So if it is one non-dual reality, names and forms and actions, these are just empty terms. All they are in reality is Brahman. In that case, there is only one reality that exists. Brahman is the only reality that exists without a second. And therefore, in Advaita Vedanta, the first step that we take of differentiating yourself, of differentiating pure consciousness from everything else, not this, not this, I am not the body, not the mind, not the intellect, I am not the, the Annamaya Kosha, Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha, Anandamaya Kosha, it's as if we are separating Brahman from everything else or Atman from everything else. So in Advaita Vedanta, that can only be the first step. It's not the final step. I mentioned this earlier, but it creates confusion many times. Many times people come and say that um, 
Advaita seems to be saying two different things. First of all, we, we keep saying that we are not the body, not the mind, we are pure consciousness, witness of the body, mind and the entire universe. The language sounds like this witness, this pure consciousness is different from the universe, is different from the body, different from the mind, which means there is more than one entity. There is this pure consciousness and something for it to witness. That's what it seems like. And on the other hand, Advaita says, Brahman alone is real, there is nothing else except Brahman. So do you see, it seems contradictory. It seems you are trying to separate two things and, at the, and then claiming that there is only one thing. So which is true? The, the thing to understand here is, the first is a step. First of all, you must understand yourself as pure existence and consciousness and bliss and then reduce the universe into yourself. If that sounds heavy-duty metaphysics, it isn't. It's just as simple as trying to understand that the reality of the wave is water. Water in itself is not a wave, is not surf, is not a bubble, is not water vapor. Water is water. But the waves and the surf and the bubbles and the water vapor, they are nothing but water. So water is identified first by denying that it's a wave or a, or a bubble or, a, or foam or anything. And when you understand what water is, then you will see as far as wave, bubbles and foam are concerned, water is non-dual. They are not second. They are not another thing apart from water. Okay. So this is the fifth point I wanted to make. I can see some of you going, what were the first four? <laughs> All of them are this same point, Brahman is non-dual. But it has very interesting implications. One implication is that Brahman is the substance of the universe. It has to be, because Brahman is existence itself. There cannot be anything else other than Brahman, because to be other than Brahman, you have to be other than existence. And other than existence is non-existence. Point one. Point two, names. Names usually denote something. Book, this one. But from the point of view of Brahman, all other names, all names, they are empty. They do not denote anything because nothing exists other than Brahman. The example to understand that, you must see how the name pot becomes empty. When you start off, the name pot clearly denotes this big fat pot sitting on the table in front of you. Imagine this. Here is a pot sitting in. So there's a word, the word pot denotes this. But once you understand that it is clay, and there is no pot apart from clay, from the point of view of clay, if you say the word clay, then the word pot loses its denotation. denotation. You cannot show anything that's called a pot, apart from the clay. Similarly, apart from Brahman, nothing, in, no term in the world has any denotation. You cannot show anything apart from Brahman, apart from pure existence. So the names become empty terms. Um, that's another way of saying Brahman is non-dual. Third is, whatever we experience in the world, it is Brahman. Just as when you are experiencing, whether it's a wave or, a, or foam or surf, you are experiencing water. Your eyes are coming into contact with water. When you look at the table, your eyes are coming into contact with the wood. So in the same way, we are actually experiencing Brahman. Of course, again, don't misunderstand. The eyes will see form, ears will hear sound, tongue will taste food, the taste will, it's a sense organ of taste, the nose will smell odors, and so on. And you will touch, you get the sensation of touch. But the reality behind all of them is Brahman. So they are, in their own ways, they are all experiencing Brahman in one sense. Uh, one has to be very careful. I am not claiming that Brahman can be seen, heard, smelt, touched, no. And yet, other than Brahman, nothing is seen, nothing is heard, nothing is smelt, nothing is touched. That's the third point. And the fourth point is, all activities are based on Brahman. Every activity Brahman can be understood in and through all activities, actions. And the last point is, that always Advaita has to be understood as a two-step process. A tremendous confusion is created because of this. I have understood myself as pure consciousness, unchanging consciousness, apart from the world. 
as if the world has separate existence. In that case, it's Sankhya, it's not Advaita. It's only the first step in Advaita. The second step is very important. Because in the first step, plurality or duality is still maintained. In the second step, duality is reduced back into non-dualism. Where you say, all of these are appearances, names only. The reality alone is, is, is uh, Brahman. With that long introduction, we can now get into the verses. But all these are very easy. They are just going to say what I just said. 50. Brahmaiva Sarvanamani Brahmaiva Sarvanamani Rupani Vividhanicha Rupani Vividhanicha Karmanyapisamagrani Karmanyapisamagrani Vibharti Tishrutir Jagau Vibharti Tishrutir Jagau Shruti means Vedanta, the Upanishads. The Upanishads declare Brahman alone is this vast plurality of names and forms. Remember, that does not make the plurality real. What is real? Brahman alone. What does it appear as? This plurality. This plurality is not against the non-duality of Brahman. The non-duality of Brahman enables this display of plurality. I'm, I'm mentally patting myself on my back. I came, I just came up with that. <laughs> that sounds nice. The non-duality of Brahman enables this display of plurality. This magnificent display of plurality of this universe. Millions of entities, billions of entities shining forth. It is the glory of Brahman, it is your glory. Brahman alone is all, the Shruti, the Vedanta declares, Brahman alone is all names and forms. I'm constantly reminded of Swami Vivekananda's um, never approach anything except as God. Because literally, whatever we experience in the world, in our lives, is Brahman. We just don't know it. We just don't know it. So, Brahman alone is all names and forms and all actions. Normally we talk about Maya being name and form, Nama Rupa, name and form. That's become a uh, catchphrase repeated again and again. But actions are also Brahman. Every action is Brahman. That's why we chant that Brahmaharpanam before food. It does not only mean, it, it particularly fits the action of eating. But actually it refers to the uh, paradigm of a Vedic fire sacrifice. In the ancient times, in the Vedic times, the, the ritual, the religious ritual was they made offerings to the gods in the fire. In a consecrated fire, offerings to the gods were made. So there was a priest who offered, there were offerings which were made and it was made in a, in a ladle, in a ladle, in a wooden ladle. It was offered into the fire with mantras being chanted and there was a fire into which it was offered now, imagine, from the point of view of Brahman, just like from the point of view of, of clay, in the pot there is nothing but clay. So whether you call it fire, or you call it the offering into the fire, or you call it the, the ladle in, by which you are putting the offerings in the fire, or you call it the priest who is offering with chanting mantras or whatever, all of that has no existence apart from Brahman. And that's what the mantra tells us, the, the Gita Shloka tells us. Brahman is the offering, Brahman is the ladle by which you offer, the instrument by which you offer. Brahman is the priest who offers, the Brahman is the fire into which you offer. Who sees all actions in this way? Seeing all actions in this way means, in every action, there are factors or components. The person who is performing the action, the act itself, the instruments by which the action is performed. To whom or in which place is the action performed? All the components surrounding, uh, constituting an action, all of them are names and forms. They have no existence apart from Brahman. That's the meaning. And so our actions can be divinized in this way, by seeing Brahman in all the actions. Now all these, what is going on right now, 
these are actually verses composed by Shankaracharya based on Shruti, upon the authority of the Vedas. Remember, before this he gave us a series of arguments, series of logical reasoning to prove that Brahman is non-dual. We have, we have gone through that. And now what's going on is, he is now going back to the Upanishads, using the authority of the Upanishads and he's composing uh, verses based on different Upanishads. So this one is based on the Brihadaranyak Upanishad, where Brahman, it is said that all names, all forms and all actions, they have no existence apart from Brahman. That it's been said there. So this is a, this is a reference to a Brihadaranyak Upanishad. 51. Another verse, again giving reference to an important well-known passage of the Upanishads, uh, this time from the Chandogya Upanishad, meaning the same thing, non-duality of Brahman. Other than Brahman, there is nothing else. So, that's the 51st verse. Suvarna Suvarna Jayamanasya Suvarnatvam cha Shashvatam Suvarnatvam cha Shashvatam Brahmano Jayamanasya Brahmano Jayamanasya Brahmatvam cha Tathabhavet Brahmatvam cha Tathabhavet Simple and beautiful verse. Whatever is made of gold Whatever you make of it will always be. Yeah. See, you don't even know what, what we are going to make of that gold. But you can say with, with your eyes shut, you can say it's, it's going to be gold. As long as the goldsmith is honest. <laughs> it can be transformed. The same piece of gold in the same family, you know. Some, um, somebody, uh, maybe um, mother had necklace. And then she asked the goldsmith to melt it and make it into bracelets for her daughter. Now, it may seem to be necklace and bracelets. But basically, not only is it gold, it's the same gold. It's exactly the same thing. The name has changed. Necklace, bracelets. The form has changed. Necklace was one form, bracelets another form. The use has changed. Necklace was put in here and the bracelets are put on the on the wrist. So the name changes, the form changes, the use changes, but the reality is that it was gold and is gold. And later on if you melt, melt it again and make another goldsmith makes it into rings or whatever, it will still be the same gold. You can claim with your eyes shut that it's gold. No matter. You, you cannot guess what form it will be because a clever goldsmith can, can make it into different wonderful new forms. That's how they make their living. So Maya is a particularly clever goldsmith who churns the reality of Brahman into a wide variety, an infinite variety of names and forms. I remember I was in Fiji a um, few years back, or three or four years back, and I was asked to give a talk to a group of people, and they, are, they were a special group of people. Uh, they were all goldsmiths, uh, dwellers basically. So I gave this example. So, so just before I gave the talk, the Swami there told me, it will be nice if you can give, a, give an example with gold or with, with jewels. So I gave this example. That it is the same thing, whether it is necklace or bracelet, you don't be fooled. It's the same gold. You can melt it and make it into something else. It's not a new ornament. It's the same. The reality of it is the same. There's nothing new there. Alright. After the talk, one of them came up and he smiled and said, a dweller. He said, Swami, good talk, but you are putting us into trouble. That's how we make our living. <laughs> we change the name and the form and we, we, we call it something new, we give it a new form and we charge for it, heavily for it. Now you are saying, that person can say that it's the same thing. What I gave you, that same thing you are returning to me in a new name and form. But we say it's a new jewel, new ornament which we are giving to you. There is a st So the this example, what is it meant to illustrate? Brahmano jayamanasya brahmatvam cha tathabhavet. What a wonderful thing to say. Whatever is born of Brahman, whatever is born of Brahman, is always Brahman. No matter what you see, 
as a, an animal or a, a human being or a god, as a, as a sinner or a saintly person, as a rich person or poor person, a learned person or an ignorant person, everything, all of that being born of Brahman, being a projection of Brahman, being an appearance of Brahman is nothing but Brahman, yes. What a, what a tremendous assertion. There's this funny story about the great sage Shukadeva. The story goes like this. So the Swamis in the Himalayas have all these funny stories. But they are very, very, very useful to understand the truths of Vedanta. And once you hear them, you will not forget them. So Shukadeva was a great sage, very famous in Indian Puranas. Now he one day visited Kailasha, the abode of Lord Shiva. And Shukadeva is a Paramahamsa, he is a childlike, pure soul. And he walks into the presence of the great Lord Shiva and um, doesn't bow down, just sits, uh, comes there and has a chat with Shiva and then, then walks, walks away. So long, we'll see you later. And the Divine Mother, uh, Parvati, she's annoyed. She says to Shiva, this child of yours, this usually when, when the parents are upset, the father, if he's up, upset with the uh, uh, son, he'll say to the uh, mother, your son. <laughs> if the mother is upset with the son or daughter, she will say, your son, uh, so as if it's not mine. <laughs> In the same way, the Divine Mother said to Shiva, this child of yours has become arrogant. Look how he came in. He didn't even bother to bow down to you. And even when he left, he did not bow down to you. You are the Lord of the universe. And Shiva said, no, he's innocent. These thoughts don't enter into his mind. He's a very, very simple lad. He's such a pure soul. But the Divine Mother would have none of that. He said, no, this is not good. He walks like a, like a camel with his nose in the air. I think he needs to be taught a lesson for his own good. Shiva shrugged. It's always better to let Divine Mother have her way. So, well, do whatever you want. And she said, well, I think... He should be a camel. It should teach him a lesson. Instead of a great sage, let him be a camel. Now remember, the Divine Mother is Mahamaya. She is in charge of Prakriti, of the entire universe. So all names and forms and actions, we may say all names and forms and actions have, are only appearances of Brahman, but really what matters to us in life is name and form and action. So she, the moment she said, let him be a camel, he became a camel in a desert. After some time, few days passed, and the Divine Mother, being the mother, you know, she felt bad. She said, I wonder what that Shukadeva is doing now as a camel. And Shiva knew that she would feel bad after a few days. She, she, he said, why don't you go and see? Go and see what he's doing. And that's what she wanted to do actually. So she said, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, let me go and see. And she appeared on earth in the middle of the desert and she saw this camel who was happily munching away at thorny leaves. And then she sort of sarcastically said, Well, O sage, how are, how are you passing your days now? How are things now? And the camel spoke, and the camel could speak. So the camel spoke. Um, he said, Oh, Divine Mother, how nice to see you here. Uh, yes, yes, I'm doing quite well. I mean, it's, it's re really a nice life, you know. When I was a sage, uh, I had to perform all these religious rituals and I had to teach a, a silly bunch of disciples and uh, I had to, you know, study Vedanta and teach Vedanta and things like that. Now none of that. I wander alone in the desert. Uh, the language there is a bit crude. I eat whenever I want and I pass urine wherever I want. <laughs> this, uh, I don't have to follow any rules of conduct. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm really happy. The Divine Mother saw that her thing had, had didn't, the ploy hadn't worked at all. And she said, it's no good. It's no good trying to punish you. And she said, okay, you be as you were. This, it was, this whole thing failed. The point being, the knower of Brahman is centered in Brahman. Whatever be the name, whatever be the form, whatever be the condition in life, the knower of Brahman sees Brahman and only Brahman in every situation in life. In Sanskrit they call it samadarshitva, being of equal vision, being of serene of mind. 
in practice we see this in the lives of great saints swami vivekananda often used to tell the story of a saint who was bitten by a cobra cobra bit him and maybe he was dying and he said the cobra was a messenger from from my beloved he used to call god my beloved so cobra is a messenger from my beloved and pavari baba story is there the thief who came into the little ashram at night and when pavari baba the saint was sleeping the thief came and started removing the the dishes the pots and pans whatever was there in the ashram and saints are not notoriously very light sleep you know sri <laughs> ramakrishna would hardly sleep at all uh, so the pavari baba inevitably woke up the slightest of sounds he woke up and he came towards the thief and the thief saw that the the monk has woken up the saint has woken up and he started running and he saw that the saint was chasing him and he ran and ran and ran through the dark uh, night and he could see the form of the uh, sage drawing ever closer to him and finally he couldn't run anymore he collapsed and pavari baba caught up with him and said to him that uh, my lord why are you running away you had not you didn't get a chance to take the dishes you wanted the pots and pans so i brought them to you please take them away <laughs> that's the vision of a sage it may seem crazy to us but to the sage we are living in a dream the sage from his point of view from the enlightened person's point of view they are seeing reality they are seeing god in the mask of the thief and in the mask of the king and the mask of the sage in the mask of the sinner they're seeing god so whatever is born of brahman remains brahman even if the name changes the form changes the function changes whether it's a rich person or a poor person same brahman a holy person and a sinner same brahman good person and a bad person same brahman people ask this question one of the questions that almost every few days i have to face is if everything is brahman then what about a bad man a person who's doing some evil are we supposed to worship him no you're supposed to arrest him and put him in jail that's your worship of brahman in that form <laughs> yes when it's a matter of name and form your behavior should also be accordingly but one must know that it is one reality which is appearing in all these names and forms if you must play the game if if, if you must play suppose there is a a, a drama a theater theatric theatrical performance and you are playing one role you must play according to your role not as the person you are and you must treat the other actors as if they are what they are representing on the stage not as who they are as actors you must play the role in the drama so when you are brahman i am brahman all of this is brahman knowing that in the form in which everything appears do the best that you can do it as a worship of god so one must not sri ramakrishna is to say all is brahman the tiger is also brahman but that doesn't mean you are going to embrace the tiger because it's brahman the famous story of the mahut and the elephant um somebody was taught that all is brahman in the by in the ashram the teacher taught all is brahman and this young man he understood all is brahman the disciple and he went out to the village on his daily rounds of begging for food for the ashram and on the narrow village road people were running shouting run away run away the mad a mad elephant is coming and at first he was scared but then he thought didn't i just read all is brahman so the elephant is also brahman i am brahman there will be no problem after some time the elephant came charging down and the mahout was also there the one who is supposed to control the elephant the mahout shouted get out of the way the, uh, the elephant is crazy i can't control the elephant and this person took a lot of bravery to stand up to his principles but no i will not get out of the way all is brahman and the elephant thundered down elephant must have thought he's crazy so <laughs> anyway he picked up our to be brahman and <laughs> tossed him into the fields casually and then charged down that so this person was knocked unconscious and uh, after some time when people from the ashram came they heard that this young man has been knocked unconscious by the elephant they went and picked him up and brought him to the ashram when he he came to his senses the teacher asked my boy what happened to you and they narrated what had happened 
Sir, you taught me all is Brahman and his elephant came, but I thought it's Brahman. Why, why, why should Brahman harm me? So I, I didn't move out of the way. Uh, you have taught me that all, it's Brahman. Then the teacher said, but all is Brahman, it's true. But if elephant is Brahman, the Mahut, the controller of the elephant, who shouted to you, the elephant is crazy, get out of the way of the elephant. Why didn't you listen to that Brahman? Basically, common sense. There's a great there's a story about a great teacher of Advaita who was walking down the village road one day and a similar thing happened. The elephant came running, um, charging down. And this teacher of Advaita, he coolly climbed a tree and he sat there until the elephant passed by. When he got down, the disciples came and said, Sir, don't you teach that everything is Brahman? You are Brahman, elephant is Brahman. Uh, so why, why did you climb the tree? And then the teacher said, Well, you know that you know you are Brahman. I know I am Brahman. But does the elephant know that? <laughs> in Vyavahara, in transactional reality, you must play your role. Don't do anything crazy. That uh, transactional reality, names and forms, are also a manifestation of Brahman. If you are not meant to play that role, you wouldn't be in that form. Okay. Now one more verse and we'll stop today. 52. Again, based on one more Shruti. This uh, 51 is based on the Chandogya Upanishad, the example of gold. 52. Swalpam apyantaram kritva Swalpam apyantaram kritva Jeevatma paramatmanoho Jeevatma paramatmanoho Yasantishthati mudhatma Yasantishthati mudhatma Bhayam tasya bhibhashitam Bhayam tasya bhibhashitam the Shruti, that is the Upanishads declare, and this is a quotation from the Taittiriya Upanishad. The Upanishads declare that the fool who sees even the slightest difference between himself and God, Brahman, he is open to fear and anxiety and terror in life. Which means anybody who sees difference, who sees difference, be careful here. Seeing difference is not condemned here. Even an enlightened person sees the difference, I told you. So Ramakrishna would see, would note, note who is uh, Latu and who is uh, Narendranath and which is the temple of the Divine Mother, which is the temple of Shiva. Sri Ramakrishna clearly saw the differences. The enlightened person sees the difference but does not consider the difference to be real. The enlightened person considers the, the apparent differences, the manifested differences underlying it to be one undifferentiated Brahman. Non-difference, abheda, non-duality is the reality for the enlightened person and difference is the manifestation. It's like the magic show. The reality is non-difference and the appearance of difference is like the magic show. But for us, until we have realized non-duality, this difference seems to be real. The difference seems to be real. This is the only, only thing that we know. We are, I am different from you. God is different from me. This world is different from us. Every object in the world is different from each other. The table is different from the uh, glass and the glass is different from the carpet. They are all different from each other. We can clearly see these differences and these differences are real for us. That's real. For the, for the enlightened person, the enlightened person also sees these differences but knows the underlying oneness. The underlying oneness is very clear to the enlightened person. If one does not see that, if one sees the difference to be real and ultimately true, difference is ultimately true, bhayam bhavati, bhayam means fear, terror. See, ultimately the condition, human condition, if you want to describe it with one word, fear. Fear is the one description of um, the human condition. Somebody said desire. I said desire to a master once, a teacher. I said desire is the uh, root of all of this because I was thinking about the Buddha. But he said even behind desire is fear. 
If I do not get that, I've lost something. I'm afraid of not getting what I want. I'm afraid of, of getting what I do not want. Disease, death, old age, failure, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid of, getting, of not getting what I want. Success and health and, uh, and riches and prosperity and, and what not. God realization. I'm afraid of not getting that. So afraid is the common denominator of both desire and aversion. The fundamental thing is afraid. And what happens when, you, when one becomes en, uh, enlightened? When uh, the king Janaka became enlightened, the master Yagyavalkya said to Janaka, did not say, O king, you have become enlightened. He said, O king, abhayam vai prapto si Janaka. You have reached fearlessness. You have reached, reached fearlessness. Swami Vivekananda again and again and again would say, fearlessness, be fearless, be fearless. Fearlessness and enlightenment are one and the same thing. But that fearlessness is based on clear appreciation of the reality that you are this immortal, undying Brahman, an infinite consciousness and bliss. That there is nothing outside of you which you may want. You are everything in fact. This clear realization leads to fearlessness. The other kind of fearlessness based on a kind of courage. You know that uh, I'm trying to be, I'm terribly scared but I'm trying to be brave. That's very good. But that's a much more human thing. But what we are aiming at here is uh, sp the fearlessness that comes out of the spiritual realization of non-duality. So those who make even a slightest difference. Dualism means God is different from the human being. God is different from the world. Second difference. Third difference. Human beings are different from each other. Fourth difference. Human beings are different from the material world. And fifth difference. The things in the material world are different from each other. So difference, ultimate reality of difference between us and everybody else. Not just an appearance of difference. The difference which appears is ultimately real. That kind of uh, feeling is ignorance. And that leads to fear. Whereas the vision of non-duality, the realization of non-duality. Remember, non-duality of what? Non-duality of the self, of you. There is no second reality apart from you. There should be a question about solipsism here. Usually there is for the philosophically trained. Are you advocating solipsism? I'll lead, leave it to the uh, audience to ask the question. We'll, we'll stop here. The same subject will continue for a few more verses. Questions? Yes. Maharaj, we understand that this is not my body, this is not my mind, I am Brahman. But how I can convince myself that I am the Brahman alone and uh, everything else is, is, uh, is uh, not true? All right. Remember, yeah, that's the answer to the, all these verses are an answer to this question, but yeah. it's, it's worth going over again and again. Remember, when I say, I am not the body, I am not the mind, I am Brahman, is it not equally true to say, I am the mind and the body and everything else? That's also yeah. true. Yeah. Right? Because that's what we are reading here. The first step is to say, I am not the body, I am not the mind, I am the witness consciousness. Right? Now, how do I know that this witness consciousness is the only reality and nothing else is real? Remember, Advaita Vedanta does not deny that you are experiencing all this. That would be foolish. We are yeah. experiencing it. Nobody, no matter which philosophy, however highly regarded, nothing can convince me that I am not experiencing it. But what Advaita Vedanta is, is questioning is the reality of the things which we experience. What Advaita Vedanta is asking is this. If you understand that you are consciousness, then all of these things which you experience, do you not experience them in consciousness? What Advaita Vedanta is going to try to prove is that all the things that we experience have no reality of their own 
apart from the experiencing consciousness. I'll repeat that. What Advaita is aiming at is, first of all, it will show you that you are pure consciousness. That's the first stage. Yeah. Second, now look back upon which of all those things you have abandoned. The world, body, mind. All of them are being experienced. The moment you open your eyes, there's a world in front of you. The moment you look within, there is the mind, thoughts, emotions, feelings. Now all of them, Vedanta asks us to see, are they not experienced in your consciousness? There are two steps here. Let me take it in baby steps. Do they not appear to your consciousness? Yes. They appear to your consciousness. One step. Let me take one more step now. They are, when I say they are appearing to your consciousness, is it like consciousness is the, like the light and there is something else outside which the light is shining upon? That's the image that comes into our mind. I am conscious. I am, I am a conscious being. And there is a world which I am illumining with my consciousness. Through my mind, through my eyes and sense organs, we leave that part out now. But through consciousness, basically. Right? Yeah. Now, Advaita Vedanta says, that idea has to be abandoned. How? What idea? That there is a light, consciousness like a light, and there is a world. And the light is illumining the world, consciousness is experiencing the world. No. Why? Follow this carefully. That the light is different from this, whatever it shines upon. You can demonstrate Look at the light, it's a different entity. Look at all this, these are different entities. You can see them separately. You can see the book apart from this light, you can see it outside in some other light. And you can see the light apart from the book. So the two things which can be seen separately, clearly they are two separate things. And you can say the light is something which is separate from the book and is shining upon the book. Example. But in the case of our consciousness, the world is experienced by our consciousness. Is the world which is experienced by consciousness something separate from the experiencing consciousness? If it is, if you claim that the world is separate from the experiencing consciousness, prove it. To you cannot prove it. Because to prove it, you will have to experience the world apart from consciousness. But nothing can be experienced apart from consciousness. This is what Advaita is saying. And this is something... Even till today, modern science, modern philosophy, which is a very materialistic philosophy. Realism has won over idealism. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's the state of philosophy today. I've talked to philosophers and I've talked to a neuroscientist also. Neither of them are convinced by this argument. And neither of them, and both of them said, there is no fault in the argument. You can't find a way out of it. There is no way of experiencing a world apart from consciousness. Of course you cannot. Because the world is not experienced apart from consciousness, instead of saying, my consciousness is witnessing a world or is illumining a world, I have to say, the world is in my consciousness. Why we say consciousness and world? Because we think, I am this one, body, and the world is there. So body and world are making a difference. And therefore I think, here is consciousness, here is the world. But that's not true. Even the body is in your consciousness. Show me your consciousness and body separately. You cannot. Anytime you experience your body, you experience it in consciousness. The moment it is not in your consciousness, you don't experience the body as in deep sleep. So, from your point of view, everything that you experience is in consciousness not apart from consciousness. Now that which goes together and is never seen separately, we have to assume they are connected in some way. They are, they are not separate existences. Just as the table and the wood cannot be separated, the table is a name and form of the wood, the universe is a name and form of consciousness. The universe is a name and form of consciousness which you are. Your consciousness alone, through the power of Maya, is appearing as the universe, including your body and mind. That's the position of Advaita. And therefore, consciousness is non-dual. There is no second thing. There is no second table apart from the wood. There is no second universe apart from consciousness. That's the, that's the logic. There's a question there.
I know it's a lot to swallow, but take it in stages. You will see it's not so difficult. And at the end, the, the result will be quite radical and quite um, uh, disturbing. But there is no logical way of escaping from that. Yes. So water vapor is water and yes. heat. Yes. The heat is different from the water. Okay. So in the same way, is either ignorance or maya, whatever you term, give it. Whatever projects the Brahman as appearances, is it different from Brahman in some sense? All right. So now the question is that um, Brahman is non-dual, but it appears as this plurality. And the claim is this plurality is not real in itself. It's an appearance. It's not real in itself. And therefore, being not real in itself, there is only one reality, which is Brahman, then we can claim that Brahman is non-dual. But now, the question could be, I'm working up to your question, the question could be, why is Brahman at all appearing in, in this plurality? Why at all is the, as universe and human beings and all this vast diversity of life, all this action going on? The answer given by Advaita is Maya. Because of Maya, Maya is defined as space, time and causation. Maya is defined as Nama Rupa, name and form. Whatever, because of Maya, the non-dual Brahman appears as this plural universe. Now we come to your question. Then the question will be, is this Maya something different from Brahman? Here, the Advaitin is little slippery. The answer is, is this. When you say something different, uh, are you saying, is there a second thing apart from Brahman called Maya? No. It's not something apart from Maya, uh, apart from Brahman. Why? Because Maya has no existence of its own apart from Brahman. Just as the table has no existence of its own apart from the wood. It's a name and a form and a particular use which is called a table. In the same way, Maya has no existence of its own apart from Brahman. Satta, existence, belongs to Brahman alone. But its character is a bit different from Brahman. It is regarded as the power of Brahman to project this universe. But as far as Advaitin is interested only in reality, is Maya real something apart from Brahman? For that to happen, then Maya should exist separately and Brahman should exist separately. Can you show me Maya without Brahman? Advaitin will say, no, you cannot. But can you show me Brahman without Maya? Yes. Show me means, can it, is there such a concept possible? Yes. The concept is called Nirguna Brahman. Brahman is self-sufficient. Maya is not self-sufficient. Maya depends on Brahman for existence. And depending on Brahman for existence, projects Brahman itself as this universe. It's like our ignorance of the rope projects the snake. When we mistake the rope to be a snake, what's involved there? Not only the rope. The rope by itself does not appear as a snake. The rope plus our ignorance of the rope. I don't know it is a rope. And then the net result is an error. There's a reality, ignorance about the reality, and the result is an error. Error is the snake. Now the snake is a product of the rope plus our ignorance. But in this case, there are not two things, rope and ignorance. The ignorance is ignorance of the rope. The ignorance has no independent entity. There's no such thing as... You know, if you say, I don't know, the immediate question will be, what is it that you do not know? I don't know cannot exist by itself. Yeah. So Maya does not exist by itself. I'll come back to you, Tara. Swami, so this, this Maya that is reflecting Brahman? Projecting Brahman. Projecting. Is, is, you know, this urge we, so many, majority of us have to evolve, to create, to compose, you know, this, this sort of motion of growth, for lack of a better term, is that an energy that's, I mean, everything is Brahman, so is that energy, what's this, it all moving towards just self-realization, Brahman realizing experiencing itself true true all of this 
this entire variety and movement and dynamism in this universe is the play of Maya on the ground of Brahman. Brahman being projected in all variety. Now, I'll just leave you with one interesting thing. Advaita Vedanta gives a lot of emphasis on vairagya, detachment. Um, they asked a Swami, it's very interesting, and they asked a Swami about what do you think about evolution? Are we evolving towards higher and higher beings? He said the same phenomenon seen with a, 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 um, an intellect which is free of attachment, which, is, which, is, which has uh, firm detachment, vairagya. The same changes, the same uh, thing which you call evolution, seen by, by that intellect, that person will say, it's change. It's the change. And the same thing seen with a person who has desire, we'll call it evolution. It's a bit shocking we even put it that way. When I say it's progress, it's beauty, it's creativity, it's evolution, it points straight back to my desire for projecting outwards into the universe. And when the same thing is seen as Brahman appearing in varieties of names and forms, the reality being one Brahman, then the, the, it shows that the mind is free of desire. I am projecting my own desire into this thing and looking, looking at it and I say, yes, there is creativity here, there is evolution here, there is growth here, there is development here. To the detached mind, it's just change. In fact, it's very interesting. I was reading uh, writings of Richard Dawkins and some of the neo-Darwinists. They say that it is a common misconception to read purpose into evolution, design into evolution, a kind of teleology into evolution. Complete materialist and atheistic person. He says evolution is basically, the word evolution seems to be moving from lower forms to higher forms. He says actually there is no lower form and higher form. It's just adapting for survival. If a lower form would survive better, it would adapt into a lower form. The aim is not to become, the microbe has, is becoming a human being. That seems so. And it's a good thing to start off with. But from a Darwinian perspective, from a completely materialistic scientific perspective, it's not necessary. If cockroaches were the best form to survive in the, um, in, in the world, then that would be the last final product of evolution. They, they have, Evolution is completely heartless that way. It, there is no teleology. We try to read a teleology into it, purpose into it. A teleology, a, a higher goal, you know, a, a Hegelian method that everything through uh, thesis, as, uh, uh, thesis, antithesis and synthesis, the whole thing is moving towards some grand realization of the absolute. Um, Advaita says, oh no, no, the absolute is already there. It, don't, it, it cannot be realized outside. It's a projection of the absolute into the world outside and when that stops, that projection stops, when you see the futility of that, Vivekananda puts it this way, when the soul beats a retreat back into itself, spirituality starts. Okay, last question. We'll see later. The point you made was very interesting that any kind of teleological projection is really laced with ego or ego-driven. Uh, it, it, it is not a detached uh, way of looking at the universe, which is where Vairagya comes in. But I had a question to go back to the five points that you elaborated at the beginning, and maybe this is only uh, a linguistic trap, a linguistic tautology. Then you said that um, the universe is of the substance of Brahman. Hmm. Um, I do realize by substance, we are talking about a physical substance, but... We are uh, not talking about a physical substance. A physical substance. Mm -hmm. But like to, like to know why you use the word substance, because it sort of, in a way, kind of trips, uh, trips us uh, up because of substance, having a rather physical... Uh, true, uh, true. The idea of a physical entity. Yes. And the second part is really not even a question, it's a, a more um, observation that when you point out that, uh, as Shankara points out, that Nama and Rupa and Karma and so on um, are really all um, 
unreal in the sense that they have no permanent reality. Um, they're illusory, ultimately. Uh, it's interesting, it's not really a question, an observation, that the Hindus, and especially Vedantins, it's sort of a, a big sticking point with them when they do not want to see it as uh, emptiness, when uh, the word void uh, immediately evokes uh, a nihilistic uh, stance, and uh, words like Satchidanandam, which are more comforting, uh, which is really uh, something to hold on to, um, is what we would prefer when we do define nama, rupa, and karma ultimately as uh, emptiness. Yes. Um, first of all, why did I use the word substance? You are right. Even technically in Sanskrit, it would not be an appropriate word to use because Sanskrit, the word would be substance is dravya. And Brahman is not a dravya. Brahman is not a substance. The more precise, I use the word substance in a loose sense as the substance of the table is wood in that sense. So in that sense, the substance of the universe is being with a capital B. Now, a more precise formulation, a precise word would be reality of the universe. Um, in Vedanta, we say, Vastu Satchidananda Madhvayam Brahma. The word Vastu, it, can, it has a wide variety of connotations. It might mean a thing. Anything that exists is called a Vastu. But philosophically, metaphysically, it would mean reality as contrasted with avastu, which has no reality of its own. And the second question you asked is, basically the question which you have asked earlier also, and we can go on to, uh, talking about that. An observation. Yes. Uh, the approach of the Upanishads has been on the whole positive. Not positivistic, but positive. It's stated in positive terms. Uh, both the, the path of, it's called via negativa, that is, the path of neti neti, the apophatic way, it, uh, by, by denying something, you reach at the truth which cannot be expressed. So that is also there in the Upanishads. But often you will find a positive formulation. Ananda is Brahman. Vijnana, pure consciousness is Brahman. Satyam jnana manantam Brahma. Pure infinite existence, infinite consciousness is Brahman. So the positive um, terms are used, but... If you look at the commentaries given by Shankaracharya, he whittles away at the objectivity of those things. That they are not objective things out there. Um, sat, pure existence, is not a thing. Pure consciousness is not a thought. Pure bliss is not a happy feeling. So, they, in some he reduces them to something not very different from Nagarjuna's Shunyam. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Sri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu